The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Timothy Saunders. I am one of your trio of co-hosts on this 86th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this early morning from southwest Turkey. We'll soon be joined by Kintia from her infamous wheelhouse in the Bay Area and Anita Driscoll, who is also currently nearby San Francisco. This show is entitled Demolition, Discovery and Disclosure. Who could have imagined our reality today, even 24 months ago? despite the stream of dystopian, end-of-world scenario movies, TV series, literature, and the controlled flow of psychological manipulation through the minority state-of-the-art propaganda, thanks to the drain stream and antisocial media, and many other previously trusted organizations. For so long, these words would have been associated with paranoid conspiracy theorists. However, today we live in a world where Many of the theories are now backed up by conspiracy fact, despite heavy censorship. Many bastions of our society have not only been inverted, but also perverted. As many people journey through the daily quagmire of globally scripted news, discernment has become paramount in making any sense between information and disinformation. Is it any wonder why so much mistrust has amounted between citizens and their so-called democratically elected leaders. Keith, please roll my sound excerpt A. I'd like to raise a delicate subject, uh, but with utmost respect for your life accomplishments and the high office you hold. A poll released this morning by Politico Morning Consult found 49% of registered voters disagreeing with the statement Joe Biden is mentally fit. Not even a majority of Democrats who responded uh, strongly affirmed that statement. Well, I'll let you all make the judgment whether they're correct. Well, Thank so you. the question I have for you, sir, if you'd let me finish, is why do you suppose such large segments of the American electorate have come to harbor such profound concerns about your cognitive fitness? Thank you. I have no idea. Well, is it normal 
for journalists to make such a severe reality check regarding the sanity of the president. I'm pleased he did, by the way, regardless of taking any sides in this Punch and Judy show. It was quite refreshing to hear, actually. Did you buy his answer? While on the other side of the Atlantic, is it normal for the Prime Minister to blatantly lie about not comprehending how numerous social events could be perceived as hypocritical acts where which were not only in direct conflict with their own lockdown protocols, but also laugh in the face of the nation. While this ludicrous party gate topic continues to dominate the UK news over how unfair it was, how can so many Brits obsess over this minor point when surely the major point is, if these elected and presumably well-informed professional liars were happy to socialize during this apparent deadly pandemic, then why were they not taking the same precautions they were so hell-bent on enforcing the public to follow? Maybe liars carry an inherent immunity to COVID-19, or perhaps they simply knew they were lying about this unjustified pandemic from before the very start. However, this week, the UK's seemingly Teflon-coated prime puppet, otherwise known as Bojo, who has an ever-decreasing number of allies, has issued a statement that seemingly puts an end to the so-called Plan B measures. Keith, please roll my sound excerpt B. This morning, the Cabinet concluded that because of the extraordinary booster campaign, together with the way the public have responded to the Plan B measures, we can return to Plan A in England and allow Plan B regulations to expire. As a result, from the start of Thursday next week, mandatory certification will end. Organisations can, of course, choose to use the NHS COVID pass voluntarily, but we will end the compulsory use of COVID status certification in England. From now on, the government is no longer asking people to work from home. And people should now speak to their employers about arrangements for returning to the office. And having looked at the data carefully, the Cabinet concluded that once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, from from tomorrow, from tomorrow we will no longer require face masks in classrooms and the department Education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use in communal areas. In the country at large, we will continue to suggest the use of face coverings in enclosed or crowded spaces, particularly when you come into contact with people you don't normally meet, but we will trust the judgment of the British people. Famous last words. We'll see how that pans out. Well, this does sound more positive news, but what's the catch? As the UK joins the growing number of nations that are finally phasing out the dreaded COVID protocols, Denmark's main newspaper makes a formal apology for its misconduct while reporting the COVID pandemic for the last two years. And thanks to the US Supreme Court ruling, which recently overthrew Biden's vax mandates for workers, even Starbucks has removed the mandate for all its personnel to be vaxxed. While it's too late for the millions who have already been vaxxed, perhaps against their own better judgment, 
who will be made accountable for the unprecedented number of vaccine injuries and deaths that have followed these experimental injections. It seems many puppet leaders, global organizations and influencers are suddenly, and in some cases very, very subtly, starting to make a U-turn on the pandemic. I wonder why even the WHO and CDC have been backpedaling somewhat in recent press releases. And Billy Gates was mumbling about seeing an end to this phase around March of this year. How the hell did he know? Could this be something to do with Pfizer developing vax upgrades in their cauldron? Is this theatre of bovine excrement really over? Or have we simply reached an intermission between performances? Of course, we would all prefer the former. However, considering what is reportedly in various pipelines, future viruses, cyber blackouts, digital money, social scoring, etc., the far more likely answer is we're dealing with the latter. Most of us are familiar with the expression to kill two birds with one stone. What we're about to discuss this evening is an important update on events that stretch this meaning and our imagination well beyond the limits of the human psyche to deliberately demolish three buildings with two planes in New York and further south to blow a giant hole in a specific facet of the Pentagon with an aircraft that left no recognizable debris, not to mention another aircraft which allegedly crashed on the edge of a forest, leaving little more than a crater. In each case, the aircraft involved disappeared. Very limited video surveillance recordings were ever brought forward as evidence and even debris from the World Trade Center complex itself was rushed away to China, leaving investigators and prosecutors with a barrage of half-truth and little tangible evidence to work with. While there remain many illusions in play, we know these previously unthinkable events did occur as thousands died, wars on terror were fought, and billions have since been negatively affected. However, it is abundantly clear the mainstream narrative and official explanation had never been satisfactory nor accepted. Leaving an endless list of unanswered questions with no sense of closure, this deception goes much deeper. While you may not directly see the connection, the events that occurred on the 11th of September 2001 not only changed the course of our reality, but were also used to distract us from multiple unjust changes in law that allowed an unprecedented grab for power and money through widespread corruption to invade our privacy and ultimately undermine the fundamental meaning of liberty. Today, the second highest court in the nation heard arguments from the family members of 9-11 victims, 9-11 ground zero responders and two national nonprofits in a case likely to set precedent on First Amendment rights and grand jury secrecy. I believe in time the truth behind 9-11 and this COVID event will be exposed, as victims of both examples of mass exploitation deserve to know what really occurred and to learn how and why we were deceived, to serve as a firm reminder that we should never again sleepwalk through our life. I very much look forward to hearing our guest's perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofthenews.com where you will see quick links to our independent Rumble and Telegram platforms, details for each show, which include links to our bios, show items, references, and selected research. 
As usual, there's a huge collection of information to read, watch and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later, as the censorship robots work around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last week, we have been swamped by another wave of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss, validate and present each topic in correct context could all too easily fill up an entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guests, Nick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honegier, and Danny Sheehan, who represent the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Aneta. Did you listen to today's key discovery court hearing? I listened to parts of it. It was really early here in California. Uh, I do know that we have a recording of it, so I think we'll be able to be posting that. Kintia has that. So um, I'm looking forward to this interview because I want to understand how this relates to the whole case, and I'm not quite clear, but I'm sure we'll find out. So what I wanted to talk about this evening, just briefly, is the rule of law. I've been talking about those things. I find this blank look coming back. People don't really understand what the rule of law is, and frankly, I didn't either until I researched it. So it's not something we're taught in school, that's for sure. So I wanted to go into that just a little bit here, as it's relevant to what we're seeing happen today. In the late 7th century B.C., there was an ancient Greek civilization and it had already reached a critical breaking point. This was still in the archaic period of ancient Greece and centuries before the classical golden age where we hear about Socrates and Pericles and uh, those types of, of people that you're familiar with. So this is before that. At this early stage in Greek histories, Athens was on the verge of destroying itself already. They had a few bad harvests and that had brought the city-state to a brink of civil war. The working class was heavily indebted and going without food. And the wealthy were battling against rising crime rates and threats to their properties. Hmm. Does this sound familiar? It does to me. Athens was literally lawless at this time. Most disputes were settled through violent retaliation. And it resulted in endless sworn blood feuds and with opposing families and peasants were routinely pressed into slavery. So in the year 1620, the people of Athens commissioned a legal scholar named Draco to codify a system of laws in an effort to make peace and restore order to Athens. Draco's code was in a word harsh. It was actually legendary for its cruelty and giving rise to the modern term of draconian, meaning overly severe. And the new laws did virtually nothing to solve the social problems in Athens. One of the big problems with Draco's code was that the elites remained in full control of the courts. So, essentially, a minority of the Athenian citizens had the power to interpret the laws in their own interests and change the rules whenever they wanted. Hmm, sounds familiar again. The ancient historian Plutarch wrote uh, of this period that the conflict between rich and poor had reached its height and so that Athens seemed to be in a truly dangerous condition and no other means for freeing it from disturbances seemed possible but a despotic power. And that's exactly what they did. So in 19, in, in 19, <laughs> in the 
594 BC, the Athenians tried to restore order again for a second time because despotic power didn't really work. Yeah. So they appointed a well-known local citizen named Solon and they to become their dictator. And this wasn't uncommon, by the way, uh, back then, resorting to appointing dictators in times of crises. So he was tasked with ending the class war and bringing peace to Athens. So one of his first asks, acts was to bring full amnesty to anyone who had been jailed, enslaved, or suffered persecution under draconian rule. Then he set out to rewrite the entire legal code. And unlike Draco, he ensured that the law would apply equally to everyone without distinction of wealth, class, or even political position. His extensive reform succeeded, and years later, when asked what turned Athens into such an orderly and well-functioning city-state, he replied, the people obey the rulers, and the rulers obey the law. So this principle is known as rule of law. That's where it came from. And it's become one of the most important common characteristics of major superpowers throughout history. Uh, dominant superpowers typically have a strong rule of law, and conversely, a weakening rule of law is a major indicator of a superpower in decline. Rule of law is rapidly eroding in the United States, and it's, major, it's a major indicator of the decline. Most often, these examples come from politicians who refuse to follow their own rules. We saw this last year with the constant COVID-1984 hypocrisy, politicians going out maskless to their hairdresser appointments. Hmm, Pelosi, yeah, remember that? And how about old um, gruesome Newsome out here? He, he was at the French Laundry having a good old time while the rest of us weren't allowed to leave the house. Sounds kind of like Bojo over in, across the pond there. Hmm? They all have this characteristic. So anyway, um, their message was clear. The rules are for thee and not for me. We've also witnessed some of the most utterly absurd instances of declining the rule of law. For example, earlier this year, the head of the CDC decided to appoint herself America's housing czar, effectively giving her control over the 10 trillion U.S. residential real estate market. Hmm. Who voted her in for that one, right? Just like the Athenian elites under Draco's code, she decided to interpret the law for her own power and interest and declare a national moratorium on rental evictions. Fortunately, she was sued, and the courts ruled very clearly the CDC does not have any legal authority to regulate U.S. housing market. It's ridiculous that this matter even had to go to court, but at least the process worked because the court system has historically been our last line of defense in maintaining a strong rule of law. Their sole priority, and I mean sole priority, is defending the Constitution. Yet now we see even this pillar breaking down. The court's responsibility is to determine whether the order is lawful following the law and the Constitution. What we have been witnessing in the courts is a gross, despicable violation of their most sacred responsibility. They seem to be completely ignoring the central question whilst violating their oaths to uphold and defend the Constitution. They instead attempt to insert their personal fears, bias, and beliefs into public policy as they interpret the law regardless of the constitutionality of such rulings. 
the fact that so many justices are ignoring the rule of law is another terrible sign of a superpower in decline. The rule of law has been established as a precedent for good reason, and we the people are now called to hold our justice system to the oaths and to their duty to defend the Constitution and may maintain the rule of law for all. So that's what I wanted to say tonight about the rule of law, just because I've been asked so many times, and I hope that helps clear that up. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kinthea. Wow, thank you for that summary. That's helpful. I am really excited to introduce our amazing panel tonight. It's a distinguished panel, and I'm just going to briefly introduce them because we have a lot to cover, and I want to hear from their genius minds. So first, we have attorney Mick Harrison, who is the co-founder of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, a member of the board and executive director. He directs and conducts the organization's litigation. Mr. Harrison is an experienced public interest plaintiff's attorney, with a national practice focused on whistleblower protection, government oversight and accountability and environmental protection. We have also a frequent guest, Barbara Honiger, who has been a member of the board for five years and is now a board co-chair. Ms. Honiger has served in a number of high-level positions in the federal government, including the White House Policy Analyst, Special Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. Next, we have Richard Gage from the AIA. His architect sits on the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry Board of Directors and also serves as a technical advisor. Richard comes to the Lawyers Committee after 15 years as a founder and CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And finally, we have the distinguished Daniel Sheehan, who has helped lead more than a dozen lawsuits of historic importance, including three Supreme Court cases. Among the lawsuits Mr. Sheehan has joined are as follows, the Pentagon Papers case, the Watergate burglary case, the Wounded Knee trials, the Karen Silkwood case, the Three Mile Island case, and the Iran-Contra affair, and so many more. So welcome, all of you. Welcome to the other side of the news. I'm so pleased to have this show with you on this Brown-Vaking event. Cynthia. Thank you, Cynthia. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I'd like to turn it over to you, Mick, and uh, let you lay it out for us what is before us, what happened this morning, and what the steps are, and each of you, you can chime in as you see fit. Uh, this morning, we did present an argument for the Lawyers Committee, for Architects and Engineers, for 9-11 Truth, for three 9-11 family members, for two Ground Zero Responders, and for Richard Gage, all plaintiffs, in this case against the Department of Justice. And we presented the argument to the second highest court in the nation, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York. The argument was focused on our lawsuit to compel the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York to deliver to the Special Federal Grand Jury the Lawyers Committee's petition with evidence of the crimes that occurred on 
9-11 at the World Trade Center involving the use of explosives. Most of you know by now that our petition is a detailed summary of scientific and eyewitness evidence that unfortunately does dispositively show the use of explosives at the Trade Center on 9-11. The U.S. attorney had refused to deliver our petition to the special grand jury, which is why we sued. And the district court had dismissed our case on the basis that the district court concluded we did not, none of the plaintiffs, including the 9-11 family members or the ground zero responders, none of the plaintiffs had standing, legal standing to bring the suit. And so we appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, which is what brought us to the argument this morning. We had fully briefed that case on the standing issue before the oral argument. And so now the court, having heard the argument, will decide whether we will get the order we've requested, which is to remand the case back to the circuit court and pardon me, the district court, and to get the district court to order the U.S. attorney to deliver our petition to the grand jury. Now, um, I will give you the short version of what was argued, and then I'll allow you, Kintia, to decide where to go with the conversation. The short version is that there are three categories of counts in this lawsuit, and one of them is the First Amendment count. And most everyone knows who's a citizen of this country that we all have a First Amendment constitutional right to, <clears throat> excuse me, to petition our government for redress of grievances. And that right, as the Supreme Court has repeatedly held, applies to all branches of the federal government. There's never been any exception to that, the coverage of that First Amendment right to petition. The government has taken the position in this case, and this was argued today, that the First Amendment right to petition does not cover federal grand juries. And no, no court has ever decided that uh, in history, as best we can determine. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, in our case, is going to have to be the court that decides whether we as citizens can communicate reports of crimes and evidence of crimes, requests for investig investigations, and requests for uh, public reports of government corruption from special grand juries. So it's, a, it's expected to be a precedent-setting decision. Uh, it may take us a few weeks to get there. So in addition, um, to the First Amendment claim and the technical details of our standing, which is pretty clear when you look at the law and the facts that we do have standing, we had two mandamus counts under a federal statute that many citizens still don't know exists that gives citizens a right to submit to a U.S. attorney a report of a federal crime for the purpose of having it delivered to a special grand jury. And the statute says in clear terms that the U.S. attorney's duty to relay a citizen report of a crime to the special grand jury is mandatory, not discretionary. So we argued our standing under those um, that duty as well. 
And the other count that was argued today and has been briefed in more detail is our request for grand jury records. And the, the plaintiffs in our case, my clients, had requested that the court release enough of the grand jury records and just enough so we could determine what, if anything, the U.S. attorney has given to the special grand jury, grand jury regarding our petition. And we will find out uh, eventually whether we're going to get a right to see any of those grand jury records, exactly what the extent of grand jury secrecy is going to be in the Second Circuit because of this decision. So that was the the gist of the case argued today. And of course, the underlying controversy is the evidence of the destruction of the World Trade Center uh, Twin Towers and Building 7 on 9-11. Uh, by use of explosives and the tragic loss of life that resulted. So, Kinthea, I'll turn it back to you. Well, thank you, Mick. I did listen to those oral arguments this morning, and I have to say, personally, I was aghast that there was even a question about the First Amendment. We are at the break, and that's what I'd like to come back to after the break. You're listening to The Other Side of the News. Our distinguished guests tonight are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Daniel Sheehan. And the show is called Demolition, Discovery, and Disclosure. And we will pick up this conversation on the other side of the break. My background education is in uh, evidence-based medicine and research methods out of the University of Toronto graduate school there, then I went on to Oxford in evidence-based medicine, and then on to McMaster, my doctorate and postdoc in evidence-based medicine. I also did some certificate program at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in biological warfare, weaponization of pathogen in 2001. Basically how you would take viruses, bacteria, etc. Any type of pathogen in and weaponize them, put them on a missile, to use them for nefarious means. And I wanted to learn, as an epidemiologist, in case my city or my country, just to understand how it works and if that can be done. I was working at what WHO, Pan American Health, mid-2019, and then we started to get these cases out of Italy in January, February, these these images on the television of people dropping dead. I'm speaking to you honestly, as a scientist, but openly. Those images out of China were fake. That was part of this game to scare the world. At that time, WHO asked me to change my position and to become a pandemic advisor to them because they were the global agency and they didn't know what was going on. Because of my training in evidence-based medicine and uh, research methods and clinical epidemiology, they wanted me to help them understand what was coming out of China and Italy. So I actually was connected to WHO and PAHO in the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And a lot of their messaging was from me. People like me behind the scenes, we took a lot of beating from the press and hammering because we were calling for a balanced age risk stratified approach. Damage had already been done by Fauci and Burks. It was Fauci and Burks' lockdowns that harmed America. 
killed people. Many people died in America because of their lockdowns. It was Fauci refusal to admit and to recognize the potency of early outpatient treatment. But the groups I work with now, like Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, etc., we champion early treatment and we have, you know, the treatment plans and stuff where you treat the infected high-risk person early, prevents hospitalization and death. Fauci and they damaged us in that regard. They will refuse to recognize the antivirals. We have estimates now of the 750,000 Americans, quote-unquote, who may have died from COVID. About 700,000 will be alive today, 90%. Oh and that's gosh. our math when we look at the data. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans died because of the NIH and the CDC refusal to allow doctors to prescribe early outpatient treatment. I have many, I know many doctors, many of them across America, right now fighting their state boards and stuff for their licenses. Their licenses have been stopped or pulled. They threatened with being fired because they prescribed early treatment that was helping their patients. I'm Dr. Paul Alexander, and uh, I have really thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to be on the other side of the news because it has shown me to be one of the forums that probably one of the only forums that allows one to be fully expressive and to uh, and to share how they really feel about the events um, in the hopes of sharing with a larger audience and in exchange of ideas so that people can become much more informed and understand the situation around them for their own decision making. So I am very thankful of this opportunity for the other side of the news. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our show tonight is called Demolition Discovery and Disclosure. And our distinguished guests are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Danny Sheehan. And co-hosting with me are Timothy Saunders, Annetta Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. So, Mick, we were in discussion about the three points that you brought forward this morning in your oral arguments. And I have to say, when listening to it, I, I was aghast that there was even a question that we would have a right to submit uh, something to the Supreme Court. It was as though I I felt like they were trying to to do a fast one in, in terms of uh, making it just totally inaccessible for uh, the the people to bring forth their cases. You want to speak about that? How you see it? Well, I think that's unfortunately a fair reading of the government's argument and the government's briefs that they really want they, the U.S. Attorney and the Department of Justice, they want to control what the grand juries see and don't see. And if they, and the problem with that is that the grand jury was created historically and put into the Constitution as a fixture of the federal government in order to be a protection against unjust and politically motivated prosecutions, and also to make sure that citizens would have a role in determining whether there was probable cause to believe a crime was committed and therefore would get investigated and prosecuted even if that crime was committed by an ally of a government administration. So when the Department of Justice takes the position, which I think you correctly perceived in this case, 
that they really want to prevent citizens from having access to the grand juries, even through the First Amendment. Um, it's a scary uh, doctrine. It's a scary proposal. We hope the court doesn't accept it. But um, what it means is that uh, we may not have an independent grand jury. Uh, we may not have it now because the U.S. attorney has gotten by with this practice. It hasn't been made legal yet. And we may not have it in the future if the Second Circuit blesses it with the appearance of legality. And I, I don't believe they will, and I hope they don't. And I did my best in the briefs and the argument to convince them not to go there. Uh, and we'll have to wait and see where they go. Well, may they line up with what truth is. Otherwise, we're going to wonder about who they are. Because we're seeing a lot of corrupt judges. And I just, I frankly don't trust any of them anymore. It's just gotten to that place. Um, would anyone else on the panel like to comment on what we're speaking of? Uh, why don't we hear from our other attorney first? Um, next, uh, Daniel Sheehan, whom I hope has listened to mixed oral arguments this morning. And then after that, I'd like to say something. Okay. Dan? Sure. I, uh, this is Dan. Uh, yeah, I listen. I listen to uh, all the arguments and the responses of the judges, etc. Uh, the the fundamental challenge that we face right now in our country, stepping back several steps. Uh, is that the national security state that was established here in our country with the passage of the National Security Act of 1947 to set up the Central Intelligence Agency uh, and, and later the National Security Council and the National Security Agency, et cetera, you know, had been all, all the ways since that passage of that act in 1947 had been codifying uh, the concept that our country was engaged in a, in a as a national security state in this fundamental confrontation with Russia. Uh, and when Russia withdrew from the longstanding uh, Cold War uh, with, the, with uh, President Gorbachev assigning the release of all the, the uh, republics in December of 1991, the United States elite uh, who had been relying upon this alleged anti-communist justification for the assertion of a national security state, immediately invaded and occupied the Middle Eastern oil fields. Uh, and the, that, of course, is what caused uh, the, the desire on the part of the, the elite to continue the national security state under the rubric of terrorism. Uh, that they, they made up, had the argument going that the, the indigenous forces, the tribal people of the Middle East who were resenting our invasion and occupation of the Middle Eastern oil fields had somehow retaliated against us uh, by attacking the trade towers. Uh, and, and it presented a, a, a kind of a perfect uh, example uh, to the American people uh, that, that there was something similar to the attack on at Pearl Harbor in 1941 that justified in the eyes of most of the people this rising up and in, in going to war against an ultimate adversary, in that case the Axis powers of Germany and Japan and Italy. Uh, and, and now, now we're, we're caught in the situation where a new dialectic, a new Cold War has been undertaken. They 
They passed the, the Patriot Act, all kinds of constraints on, on our liberties that were referred to at the, at the beginning of the show here. And, and we have had a, a steady uh, appointment uh, of justices to the Supreme Court and to the over 260 new federal judges have been appointed during the Trump administration who, who in fact, are hardcore, extreme uh, right-wing people. Uh, and they, they, the, this uh, ability to get an honest uh, evaluation of cases that are being presented to the judicial system is profoundly and fundamentally in question right now. And, uh, and so that the, the, we, we haven't given up on the effort to bring litigation uh, before these courts, uh, but the, the fundamental challenge is, is that in bringing these cases before the courts as they're presently constituted, are giving them the opportunity to put in place precedents where they rule against us and they rule to close the door. Uh, as as uh, as was uh, was discussed as Nick discussed with the judges this morning, that you know this is a question. The question is to whether or not citizens have a First Amendment right under their right to petition the government to submit a complaint uh, to the grand jury and have them uh, take this as a petition to a branch of our government is an important, a fundamental question that has. It has not, as as Mick pointed out to the court, not been fully resolved by the courts up to this point. And the challenge is that now they may take this opportunity to close that door, to really codify the fact that the grand jury, which was, uh, as as again Mick has pointed out in his his uh, his comments here this evening, that it was designed as a protection of we the people against overzealous prosecutors of the king's prosecutors. And over a period of these years during the, during the Cold War, now these, these, the prosecutors have taken over the grand jury and they've transformed it from a shield of innocent people against the overzealous prosecutors of the state. Uh, and it's been transformed into a sword that is used by the prosecutors uh, to wage war uh, against various citizens by when the law enforcement people of the king or the state come forward and say, look, we want, we're going to interrogate you. We think you're subversive. We think you're terrorists. We think you are not loyal to the United States. And they start wanting to interrogate people. They don't have the power all by themselves under our system of law, the rule of law that, uh, that uh, Aneta was talking about. They don't have the authority to make you answer their questions. And so what they've done is they've commandeered the grand jury uh, and are using the subpoena power of the grand jury, which existed to probe into the questions that arose from a potentially overzealous prosecution on the part of the state to seek out information that might be, for example, exculpatory or proving the innocence of someone that the state prosecutors are trying to prosecute, they've transformed that now into a, to a sword where they drag uh, citizens into the grand jury and try to make you answer the questions that have been put by the prosecutors uh, so that the prosecutors aren't bringing cases to the grand jury and saying, here's the evidence we have, make a judgment as to whether we have probable cause. What they're doing is saying, 
we all, all we have is vague charges against citizens. We want to use your subpoena powers to subpoena them and gather evidence to prove a case against them. So that this is a this is a terrible uh, atmosphere in which to try to utilize uh, the grand jury for a lot of its original purposes because they've been so dramatically distorted uh, by by this national security state that we we're in now, uh, and so that that uh, I've, I've been cheering ever since we've been trying to figure out how to get a, a major investigation done effectively of what happened on 9-11. Uh, and, and this is, this is a, a, a resort that has been undertaken to seek the assistance of the courts, to seek the assistance of the state prosecutor's office to, to help us on this. But we know, we know perfectly well that, the, that all of the executive branch uh, and now the judiciary that's been taken over by the executive appointments uh, are arrayed against us. They do not want to have a thorough official investigation of what happened at 9-11. Uh, and there are a few highlights that we all know about the evidence of the explosives, that they're in the Twin Towers themselves. Uh, there's, there's the uh, additional third building uh, that, that, that collapsed into its footprint. Uh, you know that had that was not struck by any any aircraft. It had a minor fire in one floor and then collapsed directly into its footprint. And, and to say nothing about the the uh, the plane in Pennsylvania, that they they're actually still maintaining that it went it went nose down into the ground at such a speed that it virtually disappeared. Uh, and all there is is a, is a big hole in the ground, and that the, they've never been able to retrieve any debris, no evidence of the crash, uh, and that they want the people to buy that. Uh, so that the efforts that are being made by the lawyers' committee here uh, to seek the truth about 9/11, they've they've undertaken numerous ways to try to get this done. This is uh, an additional one to try to challenge. Uh, the the authority of the prosecuting attorneys to block information going into the grand jury it was an interesting question that, that one of the judges asked Mick today, saying, well, "Wait a second, uh, isn't it true that the court itself is the supervisory authority over the grand jury, as distinct from the prosecutor themselves?" Uh, and and Mick pointed out in in the argument that well, there's a statute. There, there's a federal statute in New York that that there's a procedure that is provided for providing a complaint to the prosecuting attorney, the U.S. attorney, with under the statute uh, 1332A, uh, to mandate that they turn over the complaint to the grand jury. Uh, and the court asked them, "Well, wait a second. If the if the court is the actually supervising official, why don't you just file a motion to the court?" Uh, a motion to the court to pass your complaint on to the grand jury. So there's an opening here still that even if the court were to rule that the state prosecutor, the federal prosecutor in this case, has the discretion under the statute, even though it, it appears in the language that it's a mandatory requirement, even if the court is going to assert that the prosecutor has enough discretion to not present it to them, there's still an avenue left open here, it sounds to me, to file an actual petition to the court itself. Uh, the, the, judge, the judge and three-judge panels seem to be open to this, to say, look, why don't you file a petition 
uh, directed to the court, asking the court to pass this complaint on to the grand jury. So, so the, the, this isn't over yet. Uh, the, the full the full argument has been made. Uh, the the lawyers committee and Mick presented it very straightforwardly. It's been it's been professionally briefed. Uh, if that were to succeed, uh, and the court were to actually issue a writ of mandate <clears throat> that the that the uh, the U.S. attorney has to turn over the complaint to the grand jury, and and, and Mick pointed out correctly, it's up to them. It's up to the grand jury. There's no you can't mandate that the grand jury return an, uh, an indictment based on it, but but they may be able to mandate that the prosecutor at least give it to them. But if they don't rule that way, there's still this additional opening. They've almost invited invited an application uh, to the district court uh, for a petition to have the court actually get, give the complaint to the grand jury itself. It's an interesting question. Uh, but it's, this is, this is a, a one more step in this long campaign to get a, a legitimate investigation done of the 9-11 events, which, as we all know, has not actually happened yet. That this commission that was undertaken was appointed to do the uh, so-called objective investigation of the 9-11 events uh, was nothing of the kind. It was nothing of the kind, and we, we all know that. So that, I mean, and I've been... I've been I've been involved in tons of cases uh, down through 50 years now, and uh, we've won most of them. In, in the Greensboro case, for example, where the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Division and the FBI inserted informants into the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party, and they helped instigate a physical attack on a number of uh, uh, labor organizers that were trying to organize a chapter of the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers in a major plant down in North Carolina in Greensboro. And the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party just rolled up and killed them right in front of everybody, and the police allowed them to do that. We won. We won a, a, a major uh, civil rights prosecution against them in that case, and we got uh, Judge Gerhard Gazelle to issue a writ of mandate to the to the Justice Department, uh, mandating that they appoint a special prosecutor uh, to investigate that case. They took it up on appeal, and Judge Bork. In a three-judge panel, uh, reversed them and gave the gave the just Justice Department an opportunity to exercise its discretion and say no, they weren't going to appoint. But we went forward and prosecuted them under the Federal Civil Rights Act and won. So there are ways of doing this. Uh, and the persistence of the people in the lawyers' committee is is to be is to be uh, marvelled at, actually, uh, by uh, all of us in the legal bar. To, to watch the efforts that are being made here, and there's still more efforts that are going to be made, such as the potential uh, issuance of a, a petition to the court to provide the to provide the complaint directly to the grand jury itself. So that I'm I'm uh, I'm extraordinarily proud of what everybody's been doing here to date. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we all agree with a lot of the opening statements that that directly connect the the uh, anti-vax information directly to 9-11, etc. One has to be careful about, you know, uh, raising points of controversy in connection with the 9-11 events that, that aren't necessary to carry the water on all these other major objections. Uh, but uh, I think I think this issue of investigating the 9-11 events is, is uh, one of the more critical uh, issues in, of our day that we need to pursue. Thank you, Danny. And it seems to me that in the discussion this morning, or not 
discussion, the oral argument, Mick, that you were you addressed the possibility of addressing the court, having going through the court. What was it that you said about that? Well, the the gist was that there is a mandatory duty on the part of the U.S. attorney to give the petition to the grand jury, which is the exercise under the statute, the option under the statute we exercised. But as I explained to Judge Walker, I believe it was, who asked that question, I said uh, we could ask the court itself, as Danny points out, to give the evidence and the petition to the grand jury, and the court could choose to do that. But under the statute, there is no mandatory duty placed on the court itself to relay the petition to the grand jury, so it would be discretionary, which is why we did not go there to the court first, because we had a mandatory duty to enforce against the U.S. attorney. Now, if it turns out that our litigation does not succeed in the first instance, um, then we do still have, as Danny points out, the backup option of asking a federal court uh, district judge to give our evidence to the grand jury under uh, his or her discretionary authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does the does the public hold any sway here? I would think if there's a public outcry, I mean, how can this be like just you know pushed aside? It's it's incomprehensible to me. Well, that's a good question. It's more of a political one than a legal one, as as Danny might point out. But the we're not supposed to use public pressure to try try to sway a judge or a jury. But of course, public pressure is the essence of politics and persuading elected officials. So that's, you know, another avenue. I would, I would point out that, you know, we're, we're doing that here in California right now. We have our, our Romero Institute, uh, which is the, the successor to the Christic Institute that we had for years, that did the Karen Silkwood case and the Ron Contra case and the Greensboro case and others, that we have drafted a major global climate change bill to put into the state legislature uh, which has just gone in uh, yesterday. Uh, and at the same time, we are drafting a major federal criminal racketeering act criminal complaint to be subjected, submitted to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District and a, a parallel uh, criminal complaint in the state under the state RICO statute, which we're, we're going to be submitting to uh, California State Attorney General Rob Bonta in that Rob Bonta is an elected official uh, and is running for re-election here in 2022. Uh, and we can present the, the, uh, the criminal complaint to him and demand that he impanel a grand jury to present the complaint to, filled with all the evidence that we have. And we can, can and will bring direct political pressure on Rob Bonta during his campaign to, to present that criminal complaint to a grand jury. So we're pursuing a similar plan here in California, and we have an elected official that is directly responsible to the electorate here in the state to put the pressure on him to, to, uh, to bring this racketeering act complaint to the, to the grand jury, because we can prove beyond any doubt at all that the, the, the senior executives in the major oil corporations, for example, have known since 1975 that the the selling and burning of their their 
product has been massively uh, impacting the global climate change. And they knew it and concealed it and lied about it uh, and fabricated false evidence about it. And so that there, there are ways that we in the, in the public interest community can, in fact, uh, go after these people. Uh, and so that there, there is, there is if, if we need to fall back on a state uh, prosecutors, uh, attorneys general and stuff, to, to move into the state grand jury uh, to investigate some of these, for example, in New York, these are elected officials, and those are perfectly appropriate people to bring political pressure on to make them perform their duties in the office as an elected district attorney or state attorney general to perform their duty of turning over the complaint uh, to a state grand jury. Uh, so there's there's still the avenues open now. We're we're attempting to exhaust every one of these potential remedies here, but uh, there's there's more to be done here. I'd like to ask Mick a question, and he might have to answer it after the break, which is only in a minute and a half. Um, but my question is, um, having listened to the oral arguments this morning, and and I thought that Mick was absolutely brilliant. Um, we're very grateful for what he did. What I don't understand is, if I understand correctly, there is a federal statute that mandates the U.S. attorney to turn over our petition to a special criminal grand jury or in lieu to a federal grand jury. Uh, And given this is in the statute with the word mandate, if I understand correctly, what possible um, legitimate argument could the government have not to do it? What what was the what is the gist of the government's argument today, and what is our major argument against it? I think you might have to pick that up after the. Yes, break. we will. <laughs> All right. So um, we are listening to the other side of the news, and our guests tonight are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Daniel Sheehan. And the show is called Demolition, Discovery, and Disclosure. And when we come back, Mick will answer that question for Barbara, and then we'll hear from Richard Gage and Barbara as well. So you're listening to The Other Side of the News. The Other Side of Midnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Sort of the Green Revolution 2.0 is called Gates Ag 1, and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers, and it's going to help them with climate change, right? It all, again, it all ties back to that. 
and we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them, right? These, these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for, for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. Ag tech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered and we're staring right now down the barrel of, this is the, the urgency in tonight's conversation, uh, of an engineered food shortage. And they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures and they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn and soybean prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this is you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these all these players will point at the problem. It's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, now you see, because of climate change, mm -hmm. this is why we're having these food shortages and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> right? So there, there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into. And that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer. And you're listening to the other side of the news. Welcome back. You're listening to the other side of the news. Tonight's show is called Demolition, Discovery and Disclosure. And we're delighted to be joined by Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honigia, and Danny Sheehan. I'm Timothy Saunders. Kinthia is also here. Annette is there. And of course, Keith is also there in the background. So we have a busy show, a short amount of time and lots of material to cover. So Barbara, you had a question just before the break. Would you like to pursue that one before we go any further? Uh, yes, I would. Um, I would appreciate, uh, I don't know if you want me to restate the question, or it might even be better for Mick to restate my question. He's so good at that. Uh, and then after that, I have a comment before we go to Richard. So, Mick. Um, okay. Thank you. So, so, Barbara's question is a key one about what... The government's position was regarding its mandatory duty to give citizen reports of crimes to grand juries and why they felt they didn't have to and what our response was to their argument. It's a two-part question legally. Uh, first of all, you'll be interested to know the government did not deny that a mandatory duty had been placed upon the U.S. attorney by Congress. So they don't deny the duty and their obligation to give the grand jury a citizen report of a crime. And they didn't try to tell the court today that they didn't have that duty. Uh, 
what they said was that citizens cannot enforce the duty. In other words, yes, they have the legal obligation, but essentially the court should look the other way because citizens cannot enforce it and let the government thumb their nose at Congress and not report the crime to the grand jury. That's It's a strange argument. It's a legal technical one. That's what they're trying to get by with. Now, our response, of course, was that the law does give us the right to enforce that duty, which is the standing question. And we cited a 1985 decision from the district court, the federal district court in New York, the Southern District, same court that denied our case to begin with, but in an earlier year, 1985, a very well articulated decision which established citizens' rights to enforce this very statute and went through the legislative history from Congress to explain why and why we should have standing. We also, in our briefs, in our argument, pointed out that because the denial of our enforcement of this duty happens also to work a First Amendment violation that we have standing because of that First Amendment violation injury. There's a, but there's, a, there's another part to the question, which is that the government was saying it also didn't want the court to give us an alternate way of achieving our goal, which, to, which was to respect our First Amendment right to petition the grand jury even though because of the congressional statutes, we have to do that by way of the U.S. attorney, <clears throat> that the government doesn't want the court to recognize our right to do that under the First Amendment. And it gave two reasons. One of the reasons the government gave was that it would be burdensome, inconvenient, uh, demanding for the U.S. attorney to deal with all of these anticipated citizen complaints of crimes that would go to the grand jury. My response to that was there was a Supreme Court decision that the government itself cited for another purpose that came down last year, 2021, uh, called TransUnion, which actually says correctly that if a the exercise of a constitutional right imposes a burden on the government to the point where it becomes inconvenient, time-consuming, uh, demanding on the government to respect the exercise of that constitutional right. Nonetheless, if there is that tension or that conflict between the government's convenience or burden versus the constitutional right, that the government's convenience and burden gives way to the constitutional right. The constitutional right must be protected and respected. And the other argument they made, strangely, sure Danny will appreciate this, was that if we open the floodgates to citizen reports to the grand jury under the First Amendment, that citizens, some unscrupulous citizens, will by hook or crook improperly influence the grand jury and resulting in improper, you know, political corrupt prosecutions, um, which is a strange argument because, you know, the Constitution adopted the grand jury for the very reason that the founders, the framers were concerned, not about citizens improperly influencing prosecutions, but about the government bringing retaliatory, polit politically motivated corrupt prosecutions. And so the grand jury was intended to be a check and balance and protection, not against citizens, 
but against the government. So um, that's the answer to your question, Barbara. Uh, the Essentially what we have here is the U.S. Attorney's Office with the blessing of the entire Department of Justice, it appears, and the new Attorney General, Mary Garland, who is the defendant in our lawsuit, they essentially want to build their empire uh, and they want to control the grand juries and be above the law, basically, getting back to the rule of law that the program started with. The agency entrusted and obligated to enforce the law in this country is asking to be placed above the law. And that's a very dangerous proposition. Okay, so thank you, Mick. I have a follow-up question. First, a comment and a follow-up question. Um, I've mentioned this on previous shows, but I want to mention again because I think it's critical. Um, many of your listeners, uh, Kinthea, Timothy, and Annetta, may not know or may not remember from previous shows that uh, there has been a Supreme Court decision that was actually the majority opinion was written by Scalia, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, who was, of course, at the time, uh, arguably the most conservative justice uh, on the court. Uh, and that I don't know the name of the um, the title of the dis- of the decision or the case. Maybe Mick does. It's not important. But the uh, gist of the decision, uh, which was amazing uh, and extremely important, I think, for this discussion. Uh, so a Supreme Court unanimous, uh, almost unanimous decision um, some years ago uh, that the uh, federal grand juries, because they're in the Constitution, per se, that federal grand juries are the fourth people's branch of the U.S. government. Uh, they are entire. That the federal grand juries uh, are the people's branch, uh, and that that people's branch is separate and independent uh, from the other three branches, from the executive, the courts, uh, and Congress. And that um, I think that's critically important. Another critically important fact is that elected grand juries um, in the run-up to the Revolutionary War uh, were critical uh, for the winning of that war, actually. Um, So my follow-up question is, uh, and, you know, again, I'm a layman, so correct me, and you're good at doing that, Mick. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know you are. Um, So my follow-up question is, uh, is it relevant? Um, The One of the major arguments is you just reminded us uh, that the government made today was that um, in lay terms, oh, you can't let uh, the plaintiffs win because if you do, uh, the U.S. attorney here and other U.S. attorneys across the country are going to be overwhelmed by all these, even use the word frivolous lawsuits. Um, We're going to be overwhelmed by basically cranks, okay? Um, And we need to be able to have discretion. Okay, and then I think he mentioned that all the other branches have, have uh, the courts have recognized the discretion of discretion of the branches of government and their and their officers. Okay, so my question is: in our case, we are asking for a very special kind of grand jury, are we not? A special criminal grand jury, and is it the case that the federal statute that mandates the U.S. attorney to give our petition and the evidentiary exhibits to a special? criminal grand jury, um, isn't that an answer to that problem or that complaint that the government had today? In other words, how many citizens 
are going to bring frivolous lawsuits if they have to go through everything the lawyers committee has had to do and are asking for a special criminal grand jury. In other words, what's the difference between a special criminal okay. grand jury? Yeah, I got it. It's a good question. The special um, federal grand jury does have a unique power and one might argue obligation that uh, maybe the regular grand juries used to have, but at least for the moment, at least for federal grand juries, the um, Supreme Court by the amendments to the federal rules of criminal procedure has taken away apparently from regular grand juries the power of presentment, which is basically to present a a report of findings that may or may not constitute a crime, reporting to the U.S. attorney to determine if they do constitute a crime and if they do to, to do an indictment. Uh, the law has changed whether that was constitutional or not is an open question, not being litigated in this case. But the special grand jury continues to have the power during the course of one of its criminal investigations. The special grand jury can collect evidence and prepare a report to submit to a federal judge of government misconduct or government corruption related to the crimes being investigated. And that report can be made public whether or not an indictment is ever issued and whether or not a grand jury ever proposes an indictment. And that makes the special grand jury truly special. And it's it also Im impacts one of our standing arguments for the 9-11 family members and the ground zero responders, because there is some case law that says, you know, citizens don't have standing to request a prosecution or indictment because that's the interest of every citizen to see the law enforced. It doesn't give any citizen the standing required to litigate, whether that law is right or wrong, it does exist. But in the case of the, and by the way, that's not what our petition or the First Amendment would be. It's not just a, you know, a desire to indict someone. Folks may not remember that our petition collects evidence that a crime was committed, a horrendous crime that's never been prosecuted. But in that petition, we don't name names and we don't seek the prosecution of a particular individual. So that, that body of law doesn't apply to our petition. But in addition to what you're mentioning, Barb, the the unique aspect of the special grand jury, uh, it would be a great benefit to family members and to ground zero responders to get the full truth of what happened to their loved ones and their colleagues on 9-11. So many lives were lost. And the special grand jury in the process of investigating our petition could answer those questions with its subpoena power, its power to, you know, compel uh, testimony, to even make uh, offers of immunity, obtain documents. Uh, the family members could could be helped in getting closure by understanding better what really happened on that tragic day, whether or not an indictment ensued. And so I think okay. that is a, that is an important point. Okay. So my last comment, and then we'll go to Richard, hopefully. Uh, and that is, do I understand correct, do we understand correctly that basically, fundamentally today, one of the main things we've been asking the court to do uh, is for the court to effectively order the U.S. attorney to turn over our petition to a special criminal grand jury because there is this federal statute mandating the U.S. attorney to do so. Is that a good summary? 
uh, with the yes, with the addition that even if the statute didn't require it, the First Amendment requires it. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's hear from Richard. Richard Gage, well, maybe my, yeah, there is. My great legal mind is uh, <laughs> in overdrive here. Um, <laughs> I have a great sense of trust in the minds that you guys have just heard. Uh, I, I have been invited to join the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry after exiting uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, an organization of now 3,500 architects and engineers who have uh, signed a petition demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. So my particular focus has for 15 years been researching and assembling the body of evidence uh, that now, uh, praise God, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is composed of about a dozen lawyers who are keenly focused on bringing this evidence uh, to the attention of the uh, judicial branch of government. <clears throat> this has been the scream, the cry from the 9-11 truth movement composed of millions around the world. And so, you know, we, we've kind of had our hands tied until the Lawyers Committee uh, really uh, got organized and got going. And now there is just one legal action after another. And uh, this one, which was started in 2018 to submit 60 exhibits of our evidence to uh, a special grand, to the U.S. attorney, for, to be given to a special grand jury, which is what this whole discussion has been about. Um, but we were elated when uh, in 2018 uh, this information, uh, and it's a lot of information, there's hundreds of pages and, and, and 60 different exhibits. Uh, I've worked over a decade to compile this information along with my staff and volunteers. Uh, and now uh, it is at least in motion. Um, and, and we hope to God that as the judges contemplate their actions, um, their, their conclusions in this matter, that we will have uh, the conscience of <laughs> these judges uh, upon them so that th they will see fit to protect the 9-11 family members' rights uh, to address uh, grievances with the government in this, in this manner through a special grand jury. Uh, so uh, what, the, what the grand jury is going to see is the evidence of freely flying structural steel sections weighing four and eight tons ejected laterally out of the towers at 80 miles an hour, landing 600 feet in every direction, such that there is no steel that is available to crush the building below. 
the jury is going to see that this is a third of the weight of the building. And well, well, what else could be crushing the building? They're going to see that the concrete itself was pulverized to a fine powder and spread over lower Manhattan in a blanket three inches thick. And so it also, the concrete, is it not being uh, layered in pancakes at the bottom of either of these towers or Building 7, but is, is completely outside uh, the footprint and even the, the site of the World Trade Center substantially. Uh, so that's two-thirds the weight of the building that the grand jury is going to be able to assess. Uh, it, it could not have crushed the building. Well, what crushed the building? Well, nothing crushed the building. The building fell at almost both of them, the Twin Towers, at free, near free fall speed. That's free fall acceleration. That's as fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky. Well, in the case of Building 7, it was free fall acceleration. The jury is going to see that uh, through our experts uh, testifying uh, to them, which hopefully will be called, uh, they're going to see that uh, not one of the 82 columns in this building gave any resistance to the collapse of this building. The columns, when they're buckling, give resistance. But there's no resistance because the building fell as fast as a bowling ball, which means no resistance, which means no columns. Well, where did the columns go? Well, witnesses heard explosions before either of these three towers came down. None of those witnesses are involved in the uh, the NIST are, are quoted in any of the NIST reports or the FEMA reports. Uh, there's 156 witnesses who are oral first responders in particularly in particular who who uh, are recorded on audio as saying they're hearing sounds of explosions, they're seeing explosions. They're feeling explosions or being involved uh, in, by being blown around in the buildings. And most of these are before the tower even collapsed. Well, the grand jurors are going to see and hear that testimony. And, 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 you know, they're not aware of it. The American people are not aware of it. The architects and the engineers en masse are not aware even that a third tower collapsed on 9-11. And when the jurors see this third tower collapsing, they're going to use their own intuition, just like Dan Rather did on CBS on the day of 9-11, saying, oh my God, it looks like it was blown up by dynamite. They've seen the hotels in Las Vegas come down by implosion. They've seen... Uh, uh, they, they know that it's controlled demolition. They know, or they'll be told by experts who are fire protection engineers, that no building, no, no steel frame skyscraper has ever 
in history been brought down by fire. And yet that is the reason for Building 7's collapse, normal office fires. And it's the substantial reason for the collapse of the Twin Towers. And of course, some broken columns. But Richard, uh, by, by reason, case. by reason, I think you meant to say the official stories claim. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's the official story. Uh, that's what we've been told. That's what's been drummed in since day one. Well, actually, it, substantially, it was day two, because what happened on day one? Well, there were 40 TV reporters on day one reporting on these, on the destruction at the World Trade Center. And 36 of them, the overwhelming majority, talked about, reported about, and reported the FBI, the New York Police Department, and the New York Fire Department as saying that this was an explosion-based destruction, not destruction by fire or weakening of steel. That story supplanted the original story of that day, and that's what became the dominant narrative when the mainstream media took over the storytelling and... Uh, and gave us a, a different narrative. I and mean, Richard, it's absolute. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I'd just like to make explicit for the listeners that why why does this matter? Why why does it matter that it was uh, an explosive demolition, uh, especially in the Twin Towers, which is where people died? The reason it matters is because the majority of the deaths in the Twin Towers was the result of this explosive demolition. Obviously, the deaths uh, at the point of plane impacts were not due to the explosive demolition. And arguably, someone could argue that most of the deaths above probably could be attributed to the plane and the fires therefrom or the blockage of those individuals from being able to get out before the building collapsed. But below the point of impact and the fires uh, directly in the point of impact, the people who died below that which I understand are the majority of the deaths in the tw in the Twin Towers on 9-11. That's why this matters. Well, Barbara, yes. And, you and Richard, I'm very sorry, but we, we need to go to break. We're coming up on the bottom of the hour. You're listening to the other side of the news. And tonight's edition is called Demolition, Discovery and Disclosure. I have some questions for you guys when we come back, so I hope you don't mind if I uh, pull the mic back in my direction just for a little while. Please. I have a lot of questions actually. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to go to break and uh, we'll see you again soon after the music. Okay. Take a look at what is going on with us now. You have vax or no vax. You have mandates or no mandates. You have uh, pharmacies who are not allowed to make a pres prescriptions on substances that they don't, you know, <laughs> that big pharma doesn't want them to have anymore. Somebody's in control of something. There's going to be a time, follow the money, where you're going to say, hey, Something really inappropriate has gone on here. We're being controlled. 
I mean, it's it's one thing to to have mandates and all these, and another thing to shut people up who say, "I would like to talk about this a little bit." No, you don't. You're not going to talk. And and so we have uh, you know people like uh, Dr. Mercola being shut down. That is not us. That's not how we operate. People ought to at least be allowed to have an opinion and state the opinion. And and have a say. Uh, I'd like you to know that a good immune system is going to help you. So here are the things for a good immune system. But I'm sorry, you can't buy them anymore because we're not allowed to. So something's going on. So that, my friend, is going to be exposed. That's another thing that you're seeing for a while, and it won't last forever. So it's there now. But believe me, it ain't going to stay because the light's going to be turned on. Just like the the abuse of the, uh, that I've just talked about of both women and kids for priests and all, it's here in an ugly way, and eventually it's going to be seen. Christ says there'll be revelations, or maybe even a movie about it. It's going to be the same thing that happened when we found out with tobacco that they were, of course, addicting our children, and they had a cartoon, and they knew that it caused cancer. And you know what happened with that? We shut that. Basically, shut that down, and now we don't smoke anymore. Hi there, this is Lee Carroll. I want to tell you about the other side of the news. In these days, where we're not really hearing much good news, or perhaps even what's really happening, that's where the other side of the news is different. And in that, you're going to hear not only controversy, but you're going to hear great things. There are going to be joyful things too. I just got done with one of the broadcasts, and I encourage you to take a listen with myself and Monica. But the other side of the news—that's what we need more of in these times. And welcome back. We are having a lively discussion, and there's just a lot of a lot of microphones in action at the moment. So, uh, understandably, we want to make use of the best use of time. Richard, it was uh, very refreshing to hear your summary of what occurred on the day about the the buildings in free fall, about the you know, the concrete just uh, giving way, the the steel offering no resistance, and so on. I mean, for me that. As, as a designer engineer these points are very compelling in fact these are probably the most compelling points in my opinion that point to you know a, a uh, not only a, a controlled demolition of these three buildings certainly maybe more but this is also in my opinion one of the you know, most powerful foundational stones that that actually point to this being a mass deception and it's also something which you you highlighted yourself just now is that you know on, on day one the minutes that the buildings were coming down the media were reporting what they saw but it didn't take very long before they actually began um creating history creating their own narrative i say their own narrative a narrative in lockstep so you know, one of the, the questions, assuming asked a little bit more, Mick, I, I listened to the, the hearing this morning and uh, I was fascinated to hear your approach and I would like to congratulate you on that approach. But what came straight away to my, to my mind was you are asking these people to 
what can I say, grants you the opportunity to make your case. And, I, and that sounds obvious, maybe. But the point is, where is the power in this? Where, I mean, let me take a slightly sidestep. Do you have a belief that the people you were dealing with this morning believe the official narrative? Or do you think they, they, they actually have the capacity to understand that there was mass deception, murder, uh, destruction on, on 9-11? Well, that's a, a good question. It's more of a political question about the judiciary. And, um, you know, all the judges take an oath, like all of us as attorneys do, to defend and protect the Constitution. I think there is uh, hope and potential for not only this panel, but, you know, all the panels in the judiciary to do the right thing, including in this case. And as Danny can tell you, and as I can tell you from my previous cases, that does not always happen, but it does happen sometimes. You know, I've won a number of my cases. Danny has won a number of his. That could not happen if the judiciary was completely corrupt. And my um, advice to all my clients has always been, you know, we can't guarantee an outcome in a lawsuit as lawyers. We can't even guarantee that the outcome will be based on a good faith application of the law and facts, even though it's required to be. But that we have enough victories by our, you know, persistent efforts applying the law and the evidence that um, there's still a reason to use the judicial system to seek remedies in addition to using other strategies. And I always recommend that my clients, including the Lawyers Committee, use what we call a campaign approach where you don't rely on litigation, you use other strategies as well, investigation, public education, uh, media, Congress, go down the list. But sometimes litigation is the answer. And litigation may be the answer in this case. The One of the key reasons I have some cautious optimism that we may get a good decision from the courts and a victory in this case is that even though Judge Lee asked me the pointed question today, you know, do you have a single case you can cite where a court has recognized the First Amendment right to petition a grand jury? And my direct, honest answer was no, but neither does the government, even though the government tried to create the impression it does. But, and the judge asked me, isn't that a problem for you? And my answer was no. And the reason is, there are a lot of cases that I cited from the Supreme Court and the Circuit Courts of Appeal that make clear that the constitutional right to petition under the First Amendment applies to all branches and all components of the government. And all means all. It means no exception. There is no case that the government can cite to that carves out the grand jury as an exception to the First Amendment right to petition. And that's a problem for the government. And do I think this panel is capable of recognizing that and ruling for us on that grounds? My answer to that is yes at the moment. Okay. Can I, Barbara, can I, can I just go in very quickly? Barbara, very sorry. So, so that, that's your answer there. You, you believe the people you're involved with in the hearing are capable of recognizing something different from the, uh, let's say, the, the official narrative. Well, let me be clear. 
This case isn't yet about the substance of the allegations in the petition. It isn't about the 9-11 official story versus the 9-11 truth of the demolition. This is about procedural rights under the Constitution to get that evidence of the demolition in the hands of the grand jury. Whether or not this panel agrees with demolition evidence mm-hmm. is, beside the, is beside the legal point at the moment. But I'm asking about, do you think they have the capacity? I'm not asking what they actually believe. My answer is yes, they have the capacity. Good. Okay. And I ask you also, when you swore your oath, as you as you and Danny both did, then may I ask, where did you swear the oath and who was um, adjudicating that? that uh, yeah, good question. Uh, attorneys swear the oath when they uh, take the bar exam and apply for admission, and I did that in Pennsylvania, is mm-hmm. my state of bar admission. And so the Pennsylvania bar oversees my conduct, and if I don't honor that oath and act contrary to it, I can lose my license. And okay. who are you swearing that oath to? Who, who is the person acknowledging your Well, it would, be the, it would be the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in my case. I see. Um, so your, your priority is to swear your oath to the judiciary. System. It is. It is the judiciary and before the people. But it, well, hang on. Don't I'm hanging. In my, <laughs> my mouth there. Our the oath we it's swear okay. is to uphold the Constitution. It isn't to protect the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania or the federal courts. I do take an oath, by the way, when I get admitted to federal courts to practice. I'm admitted to ten or eleven of the U.S. courts of appeal now, as well. I took an oath in each case, mm-hmm. but my oath is to the Constitution. Uh, which protects the American people. It isn't to the judiciary. Okay. And the Constitution, which protects the American people, who decides when you can advance with a case or not? Well, that's complicated, but yes. you know there, there are decision points at each stage of the process. Ultimately, I mean, at the moment, this, these three judges decide whether we get the relief we're looking for in the moment if they rule against us, the next decision point, we can ask for the entire set of judges in the U.S. Court of, of Appeals for the Second Circuit. I don't know how many that is these days, 15, 20, 25, on banc to consider the, the, the case together. And after that, we can petition the U.S. Supreme Court. If that doesn't work, we have to go to another branch like the Congress okay. uh, or may, maybe the free mm-hmm. press. So that, that's that's why I'm asking about do these people have the capacity to grant your wish? Basically, but that's what I'm asking. I understand. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, for, for me, I think one of the other points which Richard mentioned just now is that, as a, just to, to reiterate, on day one, the actually not all of the media, but some of the media were reporting what they actually saw. You know, we overheard, we've seen videotape evidence of, you know, first-hand uh, helpers, firefighters, and so on, uh, at the scene, saying it sounded like explosions, it looked like explosions, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have seen those uh, video, well, video evidence, frankly. Right. Um, but but even in real time, you know, the very famous BBC uh, commentator said, oh, yes, we just heard Building 7 has fallen, and yet it was still standing behind her head. If she had taken right. the uh, 
you know, the, the, the foresight to actually look behind her before she made the report. So clearly the narrative was fixed. The script was fixed well before the event began. And this is another thing which obviously adds fuel to the fire that the official story doesn't make sense, doesn't add up. Right. Um, but taking a step backwards, what we're looking at, in, in my opinion, is not obviously a horrendous set of events that, that killed thousands and thousands of people. But it is also highlighted just how, um, how frankly, the people were gullible. I was also one of them. I think many people were to actually believe the narrative on the news in the first place. I mean, this, this was a massive wake-up call. I hate these words, but it sounds so cliche. But this was a massive wake-up call to, for people to understand just how much of a deception did occur on that day, and not just that event, but also many other events before, and I think far more since. Right. So my connection in the opening, which Danny, I think, tickled in his, his conversation earlier, mentioning anti-vaxxers and so on, um, I think there is a huge connection between this COVID pandemic and 9-11, maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly, in that a lot of people today uh, cannot understand how the COVID pandemic, and I'm very happy to use that word because I do not believe it is validated or justified by um, this deadly virus, this alleged deadly virus. I would say that, you know, the deception has been running thicker and thicker from 9-11 onwards. And obviously it, it was there before covering up many other events before. So one of the one of the points that comes to mind is how how can we expect to gain truth from a an organization which yeah to use a, an expression clearly has been drinking the Kool-Aid for a long time. Yeah. That well, would I be have my a, question. I have a response, maybe others will have their own response. My response is that there are more of us, the honest citizenry, the victims of these deceptions, than there are of them, the perpetrators and the wrongdoers. And the only way they can eventually succeed is to divide, try to divide and conquer us, which they have been doing for, in a number of ways to try to pit us against each other because they know there are more of us. And, and to... Uh, to convince us to give up, to convince us that we cannot use the mechanisms that exist for justice in this country successfully. So we might as not try. And I, I hope that our uh, limited success so far with the Lawyers Committee, and we're not done, shows folks that persistence does pay off, that success is still possible in public interest adventures. Danny's experience over the years certainly shows victories are possible on behalf of the public interest. And there is corruption in this country, and there's corruption worldwide, and sure. there has been for a long time. That doesn't mean it's universal, global, or, or absolute. And if it were, you know, uh, public interest advocates like Danny and I wouldn't be getting the victories we have gotten over the years. Uh, we don't win every case, but we win, win enough to make it worth continuing to do battle, and we continue to win ba important battles. Uh, I could give you examples, but we don't have enough time for some of those war stories. Uh, 
So I think, you know, you have to try, you have to test the limits of the corruption. And, uh, you know, I settle a lot of cases against the government. That would never happen if they had absolute control. They would never be forced to settle. But they know that I'm getting outside their sphere of influence. So I'm I'm not pessimistic yet. No, I, I commend what you're doing, and I totally believe it is necessary to explore the avenues of you – know, the legal avenues in order to highlight and expose, illuminate how far the corruption does go. I'm not, you know, painting everybody with a, a, a corrupt right. color. But the, my point is that in, in, an, in a world of, of deception and uh, fake news, it's very difficult to know what is the truth. And even when it's staring us in the face, people um, sometimes, as they prefer to continue leaving the uh, the mainstream narrative that that's that's very concerning Timothy Timothy let me let me jump in here sure the, the uh, there, there's uh, uh, <clears throat> there's there's an old there's an old Irish aphorism that the the Irish people refer to the uh, Ireland as the old sod that's how they refer to it their nickname it's an old Irish aphorism that says ah well the old sod it isn't what it used to be but then it never was. Uh, so it, it's extremely important for us to understand our generations uh, that have grown up here in the last, you know, 75 years, uh, at the total amount of us that are either that older or younger. You know, we've, we've been in an age where we've been pushing extraordinarily hard uh, to expose uh, these types of deceptions that have gone on. Uh, the reality is uh, that these types of deceptions have been going on forever. Uh, sure. This this elite uh, group that think that they're smarter than everybody else, that that they either they themselves have become richer than everybody else, or their ancestors were richer and they've inherited the money, and they think that they're in charge. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's been a lot of prejudicial built in that that a lot of the they get a lot of college education and they go to big expensive schools and stuff and that they sort of train their progeny to be better trained to how to run the system etc uh, and so that they're convinced that they have the right and the obligation to rule uh, now this is this was known at the time our constitution was set up, and, and the reality is if you go all the way back to the beginning of the constitution, and uh, Alexander Hamilton, and those people, he, Alexander Hamilton was an attorney that represented the mercantile class, the wealthy, the the merchants that actually organized the revolution against the British crown. Mm-hmm. That that revolution, you know, we, we get taught all kinds of mythologies in the in the schools, the public schools, the state-run schools, about how the peasants rose up and overthrew the the uh, the, the barons and the the aristocracy and all of that. Uh, but the, but the fact of the matter is that the people who engineered the revolution against the British uh, crown were the mercantile class. Uh, and what they did is under Alexander Hamilton, they wanted to establish a strong federal government uh, that could coordinate commerce for the most part. That was what the federal government was originally set up to do. The, the, the sovereignty resided in the colonies, the 13 colonies. Uh, and they set up a, a, a federal government of limited delegated authority to primarily regulate 
trade and commerce and, and common weights and measures and currency, etc. cetera. Uh, and the, Madison and his group, uh, Aaron Burr, who you remember killed Alexander Hamilton, that Aaron Burr and, and Madison and Jefferson and the others, these people are the ones that put in the Bill of Rights. The one to say, look, in setting up this federal government, we want to make, want to make it really, really clear that this government is not imbued with the authority to pass statutes in given areas. Like they can't pass any statute to limit free speech. They can't pass any statute to limit freedom of religion. They can't pass any statute to, uh, to interfere with freedom of assembly, etc. Okay. So there's been this dialectic right at the very beginning uh, of the creation of the Constitution. There have been two camps that have been in struggle with each other, this kind of dialectical struggle that's been going on. And the, the Madisonians, it's, it's, important, it's important to remember uh, and it's a it's a fact that a whole I, I don't know that one tenth of one percent of people in the entire world uh, realize that that, uh, that that James Madison and Aaron Burr and and the rest of these people that that all of these people were schooled uh, at the College of New Jersey uh, that the it was later became Princeton, but there was a college there, and a guy named John Witherspoon taught a course on moral theology, uh, and that not only not only uh, Madison and Burr were trained there, but thirty seven of the original federal judges, three of the Supreme Court judges, ten of the original cabinet officers, twelve. Uh, members of the of the Continental Congress, twenty one United States senators, and thirty nine congressmen were all trained by John Witherspoon, uh, <laughs> and they have a whole a whole theory of natural law rights that individual citizens have these rights, and that that group has been struggling against the elite uh, aristocratic uh, uh, mercantile class, who were basically the new aristocracy. Uh, and that, that that thing has been going on for all this time. That that the the people here that are that are on they're on on this broadcast that have been working in this and the nine eleven uh, truth people that have been working on this uh, in 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 the others. We are we are people who are struggling to try to bring about an existential promise. That has been tendered to us has been proffered to us by this by these natural law theoreticians, and the elite have always been there. The the uh, the aristocracy, the kind of nobility, royalist class type people, and this struggle has been going on. Uh, we we sometimes we rise into the ascendancy. We get uh, we push back and we get uh, some extraordinary decisions made supporting free speech supporting democracy, supporting equal rights of people, increasing the rights of women and gay and lesbian people and other people that are in minorities. We, we, some, so, but this dialectic is going on. We have to recognize that this is happening right now. But what we see happening right now, we see this dividing up into these two incredibly opposing camps uh, that are going on right now, where we have the, the, the right-wing reactionaries in charge of Fox Fox News, and we have the kind of liberal progressive people in uh, MSNBC. They, we have their own television networks now, and people are fighting with each other. Uh, and and the, there's a there's a chance of potential 
civil war taking place here. This is a very real situation that we're faced with here. And so, so a people such as, such as myself and, and, uh, and also Mick and the other lawyers here are trying to stand up for the rule of law. We're trying to say that, look, there are promises that have been made inside our constitutional democratic system, which if we work hard enough to champion these things and argue on behalf of these things and educate our people and organize and mobilize and conscientize our people, we can rise up and push back against this elite that's been here since the beginning. And the fact of the matter is that this elite has been primarily in charge throughout the entire 240 years of the United States. Uh, so that we, we, we shouldn't start despairing over the fact that we're just better educated. We happen to be more aware of it now. Uh, you, can't, you, you can't say, oh, we've suddenly discovered that the government is more corrupt than it's ever been in the history. It's not true. Uh, we, we need to struggle in these things. I've, for 50 years, I've been doing these litigations. I, I've probably done 60 major cases. Denny, and Denny. I've won four, 52 of them. You know, yeah. so we can we can do this. We got the we got I represented the New York Times getting to publish 47 volumes of top secret government documents that were Danny, my, my, lies, my, et cetera. We can, we was, can win these things. My point was, I do not think the government is more corrupt now than it has been previously. I think the whole system is is ill founded from the beginning, frankly. That's my personal opinion. What I'm saying but, is but, but, that, what I'm asking but, is, can, as, can I just as, finish as, my as, point, as, please? No, I'm just as, as distinct from what? Well, if you listen to the end of my question, you'll hear it. Okay. As so, distinct from what? Okay. The system, in my opinion, does not work. You're, you're saying that there are two sides which continue to fight each other because they believe different things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are you, how long do you think you're going to go on fighting the other side? And well, do this, you think, is, did, did, I haven't finished yet. Oh, I thought <laughs> how you, I how long do you me. think it's going to, you know, before it's going to end? The system is inherently broken from the beginning, in my opinion. So in my opinion, what we need to do is to evolve to a different system where there are not two sides constantly trying to uh, beat the crap out of each other. Otherwise, it's not going to end. Well, and like at the what? moment... The, like what? what? What system are we talking about here? A system where there are not just two sides. A system where... A parliamentary system with, with multiple political parties... A parliamentary Possibly. system? Possibly. I'm not saying there's a huge amount of success to be drawn from those systems either, but the point is with which, the which is, not a, which is not a minor point. You know, it's not, it's not much more successful these other things. Uh, so, so what I'm saying is that, that, that we have an opportunity here, I believe, through the exercise of power in our country to mobilize people, to educate people, that we can actually prevail in establishing the promises that have been made in the country of, of, a, of a democratic republic. Uh, I think we can do this. Uh, I, I've been at it, I say, 50 years. And, and the, 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 as I say, the, of the 60 cases so I've done, I've won 58 of them. So it's not just like a little bit of victories. You know, you have to know how to do these things. You have to exercise the kind of care. I, I wish it were easier. I wish it didn't take as much time. I, I wish I didn't have to work 18-hour days, you know, all the way up. I'm, I'm 77 years old. I've been doing this stuff for 50 years. But I'm, I'm sure that we're going to prevail on this, and I hope we can do it without having to come to another civil war. Well, I think 
it's necessary to zoom out a little bit. This potential civil war is something which, in my opinion, has been instigated on a global scale. And while what you see is perhaps United States, I think you have to realize that there is something behind the scenes, behind, as I say, these puppet leaders, uh, which is instigated. I have no doubt about that. I can tell you that. I have no doubt about that. And that's exactly what my career has been designed to get at. You know, is it, who is it? behind the veil who is it who's the wizard behind the, the machine that, mm-hmm. that we're we're after this i can tell you i spend my full time going after this thing and i've been working my way up this ladder you know mm-hmm. and I've, I've been working on it and we're going to get it before before i decide to uh you know take a break and sit back and put my feet up and take a week off well i'm, I'm delighted to hear <laughs> danny barbara is there anything you'd like to add because i did really cut you off <laughs> yeah. earlier well, I've known Danny Sheehan for over 40 years, and I know we're going to prevail. Um, it, it's, we're in a spiritual battle as well as a legal battle and an informational battle. Um, I'd just like to end with something that Mae Russell told me. You know, for, for years, she was a JFK assassination researcher of, of great repute. And I worked with her for about a year, unfortunately, before she passed away in October of 1988. And one day, I worked with her five days a week. And one day um, I was, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, like like you, Timothy, I was I was getting uh, kind of uh, frustrated and depressed. And May turned to me and she looked me in the eyes and she said, Barbara, you have to pursue truth for its own sake. And I think that's important, but you have to you have to pursue truth for its own sake and also pr- pursue justice for its own sake, regardless of the outcome. We will never give up. And it's because we have that commitment that we will never give up that I'm absolutely confident that we will prevail. The question is when. Well, I, I agree with you that it's... Uh, I don't agree that I'm not depressed. Frustrated, yes. Um, I believe we will prevail, and I do believe it's in the pursuit of truth. However... I think that what we need to do is to focus on or give certainly more value and more balance to the spiritual war that's going on, as well as the uh, legal information and governmental wars that are also raging at the moment. I guarantee we are aware we're in a spiritual battle. I guarantee you. Well, Barbara, unbelievably, and thank you, everybody, we've we've run out of... uh, Runway, we're right at the end. I'm actually driving over the lights at the end of the <laughs> runway. So I'm going to close. Uh, despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, healers, and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda to make your own independent research and to stop acquiescing and stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you were born with power and you wake up each day with power. It is entirely up to you how you choose to retain or give it away. You've been listening to another live broadcast of The Other Side of the News. This 86th edition is entitled Demolition, Discovery and Disclosure and remains available at www.theothersideofthenews.com. My name is Timothy Saunders, and together with Kintia and Anetta Driscoll, offer special thanks to our guests, Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honegier, and Danny Sheehan, representing the Lawyers' Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, 
our listeners and contributors. And also special thanks to our sound engineer, Keith Morgan. We wish you all a positive week and look forward to reconnecting with you again next Friday. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Timothy. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.